Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. Apologies, I'm doing this a few days later than I often do because in complete honesty, I recorded this podcast a couple of days ago and I've just, I've been having a few problems with the sound quality and I filmed the, I filmed the podcast, I recorded the podcast and then I listened back and it was just so much distortion. I literally had to just delete it, and it was so frustrating. Deleted the whole podcast episode, tried again, recorded, still distortion. I then had to go online and and Google, why is my Rode mic not recording properly? And it turns out, for the past, this is so pathetic, for the past one or two years, I have had completely the wrong wire plugged into my microphone. Completely the wrong wire. Hence why every so often I've been having distortion. So I think... I hope I'm right. Let me know. From here on in, it should be flawless sound quality. Uh, Let me know if you find the sound quality better or worse. I will be heartbroken if it's worse, but still let me know because I will be sensitive, but I must know and I must learn. But it should be absolutely spot on now, I'm hoping. So any type of sound quality problems gone. I've learned my lesson, I hope. Right, let's begin. Let's begin with Excel Moto. They've currently got their Black November sale. Just a few days left of that. I've got a pair of coarse raw denim jeans. They're just £43 at the moment. They're superb quality. They're retro vintage style denim. I'll put the link in the description. It's just £43, so go and check them out. Right, on to it. I've got a lot to get through today. It's Friday evening. I've just got back from a ride in Barcelona. I won't go into too much detail, but I went into a Royal Royal Enfield dealership and I also went into a very, very cool looking electric bicycle dealer. They're designed in Barcelona, made somewhere else, but I just wanted to get an idea. You know, you can make cool looking electric bikes. I wanted to go to this place and see how they do it, you know, just to kind of get a feel of how it can be done. I'm really interested in that type of stuff. Um, And I was hugely impressed, but I won't go into details because that's for YouTube and I'll show that on Sunday. Right. I've lost where I am. Oh, let me start with some bad news. Well, bad news. I've just got back from the Bonneville riding around about 40 miles around Barcelona and it's just glorious. A glorious way to spend a Friday stopping for coffees with Monica, you know, stopping for food, soaking it all in, jumping back on the Bonneville for another coffee, pull over somewhere, park anywhere. I love it. Okay, starting. Let's get back to the bad news. I think this was Nick Moto UK sent me this. This has not been in the news. 23% fuel duty hike from, I think, May 2023. This has been played under the radar a bit. I don't know if it's been completely confirmed, but it sounds like it's all but confirmed that for, I think it's either March or May 2023, there'll be a 23% increase in fuel duty in the UK you know, we are getting pummeled from all angles. Of course, we need to sort the economy out. And with that, the only way you can sort it out, in essence, everyone's tax is going up everywhere. This is probably going under the radar as almost a bit of a stealth tax that everyone will have to pay. The easiest way to tax people, hike up the fuel duty. It's the easiest way because what are we going to do about it in reality? Well, there's only one thing we can do. Buy the most economical motorcycles or cars that we can. And it got me thinking, you know, 23% is not an insignificant figure. Uh, My Bonneville, for example, 
it does 45 miles per gallon. And that's not great, you know, and it does get you thinking when you look at this, because for example, the new BSA Gold Star, that is 70 miles per gallon. Let me just move this mic up a little bit. I'll clip it up here, a bit higher up on my shirt. That should be better. Just checking in the mirror, that looks better. The BSA Gold Star is 70 MPG. That is a gigantic, gigantic increase in MPG when compared to, for example, my Bonneville. And that gets you significantly more smiles per pound, significantly more miles per pound that you put in the bike. And I've ridden these bikes, you know, for example, the Royal Enfields with 70, 80, 90, sometimes pushing 100 if you're looking at the Meteor, pushing 90 or 100 miles per gallon. You're pushing double the MPG that my Bonneville does. And I know from experience, after having been in Tenerife where the fuel is cheap, and also where I was riding quite a few Royal Enfields, it makes a huge difference. You know, a lot of the time I was filling up my, my Bonneville, filling up for nine pounds. Filling up for nine pounds. That's 150 miles for nine pounds. It's completely insane. It's brilliant. If you're American, you may not understand that because your fuel's dirt cheap, but trust me, for us Europeans, that is mind-blowing. And it meant I didn't care about filling up. Fill up twice a day, it's no issue at all. It's very different when you're paying close to 17, 18 pounds a tank. You know, it does make a difference. Right, I'll move on from that, but it looks like that's set to come in in just a few months. Let me start with a few, I'll tell you what, I've got a few on my desktop, a few uh, emails and comments I want to get through, and then I'll get to a few more that I've saved over the course of the week. The first is from Russell. Freddie, no service history or a lack of receipts for maintenance completed by the owner should ring warning bells. And with regards to all the gear all the time, this will start a few comments. But for me, yes, you dress for the slide. There are plenty of unpredictables out there. Gravel, oil, diesel, debris, animal and crazy road users. Russell, thank you for sending that over. You know, it's impossible to argue with you with regards to service history. Impossible. But... Just from my experience, I have never had an issue with, I mean, I always buy bottom end of the market, admittedly, I do, but I've never had an issue with a vehicle with no service history. Do we place too much emphasis on the service history? You know, if we get to a vehicle and it's fine, well, is that fine? And the service history is just a whole load of paper that in reality, we're never going to look through. If the history check checks out fine, you get to the vehicle, it's fine, is that all that really matters? I'm just putting that question out there, Russell, because I can't argue with your point. It's, it's going to be better if you have the history and all the gear all the time. I tell you what, Russell, again, I cannot disagree with you, but if you're listening to this, I'm very curious, and anyone else, if you are the kind of rider who has the attitude, and it's a completely fair, and I can't argue with it, it's a right attitude, all the gear all the time, which is perfectly sensible, how would you feel or what would you do if you went, for example, to Southeast Asia and you rented out a 125cc scooter or if you bought a 125cc scooter in England, for example, or in Italy and you rode that 125cc scooter, would you wear all the gear all the time on that scooter, that little 125cc, that Vespa? Would you be fully kitted out, you know, jeans, 
boots, gloves, jacket, on a Vespa, on a 125. I'd be fascinated to hear your thoughts and your opinion on that. Does it change with regards to the bike? Russell, thank you for that. I move on to Andy. Okay, have a listen to this, because this is with regards to biking in general, value bikes, and what is biking enjoyment? Have a listen, because it's, it's a long one, this, but I enjoyed reading this. Freddie, after listening, after listening to your latest podcast, I can confirm that watching Terminator 2 at the cinema was the moment for me. Seeing my hero on that now iconic Harley Davidson fat boy did it. But really, the best motorcycle in the world is the one that you're riding. Motorcycles in days gone past were always an affordable form of transport. These days, not so much. It used to be the case that a motorcycle was so much cheaper to buy and run than a car, and that is just not the case anymore. Now, when you spend north of £20,000 on a new Honda, BMW, Yamaha, and so on, look, to me... The true biker is the guy or girl that rides their bike all year round, regardless of the weather. Not the middle-aged bloke who went out and bought a brand new BMW R1250GS with matching gear to ride on only on the odd Sunday when it's sunny. I paid £1,850 for my winter hack, my Suzuki SV650S from 2008. And it's awesome. I ride it in all weather, without a care in the world, having as much fun as anyone has any right to. We all have a dream bike, but would it be a dream to own? Would you be too precious about it to ride it in the rain, or if there's a chance for a bit of salt on the roads? I feel close to my perfect garage, and I'm lucky, I admit, because I have a garage for both my Honda Shadow and my Winter Hack. But I have all bases covered. If the weather's less than awesome, I'll get out to my Suzuki. But bring on that crisp, dry winter's day when I go out for a cruise in my shadow. What I mean to say, or what I meant to say from the beginning of my rant is this. Does it matter what you ride, how old it is, how fast it is, how much it costs, or how popular it is? The only thing that matters is how it makes you feel and the fact that any motorcycle can give you that feeling of freedom and excitement. You know what, And Andy, this is a point that I really like, especially your last one, because motorcycles are fun full stop. If we look at a car, you know, I could go out and I could buy a people carrier, and that is not specifically a fun car to drive. But bikes are very different. If I look back at mine, my 800 pounds Suzuki Bandit was every single bit, every single percentage as fun as any other bike I've ever ridden. This may sound crazy, but even, you know, the Kawasaki ZH2, 200 horsepower, my Bonneville, uh, Harley Davidson, a Ducati Supersport. That Suzuki Bandit 600cc from 2002 was every bit as fun as any bike I've ever ridden. Because a bike is fun. A bike is enjoyable. That's the nature of motorcycles. It doesn't matter how much you spend. For that thrill, that simple thrill of biking, that simple thrill of freedom... It's the bike that's fun, not everything that goes on around it, not all the, the flash stuff, the branding. It's purely the bike. I have as much fun on a 125cc scooter whizzing around wherever it may be as I do on any big bike. They, they are just as fun. 
everything else that goes along with it, and of course I sold my Suzuki Bandit. Why did I sell my Suzuki Bandit? You know, for a Bonneville that's four times the price and slightly slower and no more fun to ride. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, is it a vanity thing? Is it, is it, you know, just loving the style of it more than any kind of substance? Is it some funny connection that we have to certain kinds of bike? Because you're right, Andrew, the core fun of biking is from the bike itself. Everything else is just a nice added bonus on top of that. Having a read through, yeah, I mean, it's a very good shout on the, yeah, on the Harley Davidson Fat Boy. That is a bike that I very often look at. And, and you're right. I mean, I'm having a look at this now. £20,000 on a new Honda, BMW, Yamaha, so on. You know, that is a lot of money. And what's also interesting here, you know, these are not necessarily ridiculously premium brands. You know, Honda, Yamaha. These are all bikes and brands where you can quite comfortably spend £20,000 on a motorcycle. And, you know, at its core, a bike, in my mind, it should be cheap. It should be a cheap, simple alternative to cars because there's so much less to them than a car. You know, once they start getting into proper car territory, which is incredibly common now, very, very normal for a bike to be in car territory money-wise, yeah, you, you do lose a little bit of that sense of at least financial freedom. And the financial freedom can give you so much. However, on the flip side, on the flip side, it is a lot of the time an earning issue more than anything. As an example, you know, there will be plenty, plenty of people on, you know, let's say five, ten, fifteen thousand pounds a month. And for them, that twenty thousand pounds on a motorcycle is is the equivalent of someone else buying an, an eight hundred pound motorbike. It is of no consequence to them spending twenty thousand pounds on a motorcycle. You know, that it would of no issue. It's no dent on their bank account. Or it's the same equivalent dent on their bank account as someone with an eight hundred pound bike, for example. But that level of overstretching, you know, if you're looking at a twenty thousand pound bike, and I know I always say it, I always bang on about it. But I have put myself in ludicrous positions with overstretching with vehicles, ludicrous positions, and it has destroyed the fun of riding. But it's more the fact that I put myself in that ludicrous position of overstretching. If I was a bigger earner at the time of doing it, I wouldn't have been in that ludicrous position. But because I tried to get into a position that I had no real right to be in, I should never have done it, I put myself in a position of trying to live like some kind of millionaire when I just couldn't do it. I now have a rule, Andrew, for myself. I, I try and imagine the biggest possible, within reality, service bill for a car or motorbike when I'm looking at it. And I think, look, how would I feel if I have to repair it? As an example, a Land Rover Defender, it's perfectly common that you could have to have a 2,000 pound repair bill. Right, okay, how would I feel now if I would have a 2,000 pound repair bill? I, this is the truth, I would feel ill and I would not be able to, it would cost me a holiday. So then I know immediately, okay, right, I can't do it because I, I don't have the money to be able to afford one of these. And I had a look at the Bonneville similarly when I was buying the Bonneville and I could do it. 
you know, because I thought, look, I can't see anyone here with scary repair costs. Everything looks cheap, so great, I think I can do that now. That will give me the freedom to go and enjoy it as well as buying it. I won't be crippled by this financial debt or crippled by this financial worry all the time. Right, I'll move on because I'm rambling. This is from Carlo. Freddie, regarding... Oh no, I've got one more from my desktop. Let me do this before I forget. Uh, this is Shannon, I have to read this. Shannon from Australia. Freddie, interesting podcast. The protective clothing debate will be polarised and good luck with that. Shannon, do you know what? I'm amazed. I've had more people agreeing with me than disagreeing with me. Um, I'll see if I've got a few more comments on that. But most people, I promise you, I'm not omitting anything, Shannon. Most people seem to seem to agree with me. And I'm still open to people sending over messages if they do not agree with me. I'll move on from Shannon. RE Modern Engines. They are more reliable than older ones. However, they do still suffer from issues, both mechanical and electrical. Electrics are always going to be the pain point of modern bikes as they get older. However, JB has a point in the fact that aftermarket engine management systems are more than capable of solving the problem. You know, that is the, the single biggest thing for me, Shannon, electrics. And you're right, you know, whether it's cars or bikes, electrics all go wrong. They will all go wrong. It's the first thing to go wrong anywhere. The more electrics you have, the more things are going to go wrong because eventually they will all go wrong. I'm a huge believer that any kind of electrics go wrong. I honestly think the Germans make the finest quality, you know, the, the most beautifully engineered cars and motorbikes, beautiful quality, just fine materials. They are top, top level with it. But I find they make very, very poor electronics. All electrics just go terribly wrong on any German car I've ever known people to own. You know, if you look at the old BMWs, some of the electrical issues they have, just constant issues. The second they get to about 10 years old or something, constant issues. Shannon, thank you. All my best. Over to you in Australia. Right, I move on to Carlo. Freddie, regarding Euro 5 restrictions, I'd like to know what variations in wheel core materials affect your ride. And also, given innovations in electric bikes, what are your thoughts on super, super capacitor banks acting similar to charges on internal combustion engine bikes? I'd love to hear your thoughts here. Of, uh, on the podcast. Do you know what, Carlo? My knowledge of anything electrical or super capacitor related for electric bikes is fairly small, although I do have a, at least a shallow level of interest in it. I was having a look at this. Super capacitors, uh, it sounds like there's a lot of positives with, with them, so they can, uh, they can charge at an extremely fast rate and everything sounds brilliant. Far, far faster than a traditional or a battery. But, but, I found a disadvantage of this. Super capacitors can lose as much as 10 to 20% of their charge in a day. And that, for me, is one pill too far to swallow. That is a too big a pill to swallow because... For me now, electric motorcycles, the range is too small for them to be anything other than city commutes. It's just too small. 
the, the infrastructure isn't there and the range is way, way, way too small. I think it needs to be up to two, three hundred miles range. And you could say, well, a normal motorcycle only has a range of 120 miles. Yeah, but we don't have the infrastructure in place and you don't want to be filling up every, you don't want to be charging up for half an hour every 40 minutes of riding or every 70 minutes of riding or so. So we have to have different parameters. They have to have a two to 300 mile range as a minimum until they can be considered for anything more than city commutes. Add to that the fact you could be losing 10 to 20% charge in a day. Uh, it's too big a pill to swallow, Carlo, I think. Thank you for that. I move on. Paul, Freddy. A couple of things I wanted to mention, which are regarding your search for an original Defender. I agree, buy original. However, do look for one with a galvanised chassis. We own a Defender 110 for many years. And the biggest issue with that uh, that annoyed me was that every single year it needed a little more welding done to the chassis. The second point is that I too am awaiting the Royal Enfield Meteor 6 50 with anticipation and I will probably buy one after test riding it. Do you think we'll buy one also and will the Bonneville have to make room for one? Best, Paul. Ah oh, yeah, Paul, I know. See, this is the problem with the Defender. It's, it's just what I was touching on earlier. I know that they have a rust issue and I know that you could fork out 2K to fix a bit of rust or fix a certain element on the, the chassis of the Defender. And then I was saying to myself, look, if this is the case, which is very possible, let's say I buy my Defender for £20,000 and then I get a, a bill to repair bits of the chassis and it could be a grand and a half bill, a two grand bill. How would I feel about that? Would I have the money to do it, to fix it? And I know that I'm yeah, just not ready for it yet because it would deplete my bank account slightly too much. I think I still need another, uh, maybe another few months, maybe another couple of years to get myself into that position. Otherwise, I don't know if I'd enjoy the ownership experience enough yet. I think I need to, I think I need another few months, maybe another couple of years. Interesting you say that. Thanks for that, Paul. Royal Enfield Meteor 650. Yes. Yes, I'm tempted. Sorry about the creaking every so often. That is just the wooden chair I sit on. Yes, Paul, I'm tempted by this. The problem is, yes, it's different enough to the Bonneville, the Super Meteor. It is because it's a cruiser. It's different. And I've never owned a cruiser. I had someone actually saying to me, Freddie, come on, the, the Royal Enfield Super Meteor. It's not a cruiser. But it is. I think it is. You know, it's a cruiser. That is the style of it. Um, you know, not all cruisers have to be huge Harleys, for example. This is a cruiser-style bike. But, but it's still similar enough where, you know the problem? I just, I'm not a two-motorbike kind of guy, to the best of my knowledge, Paul. And the reason for that, I'm lazy. I'm lazy with maintenance. I'm lazy with paperwork for taxing two bikes, for insuring two bikes, for making sure two bikes have their annual checks, for keeping the paperwork. Just, I, I'm quite a minimalist with everything, whether it's, you know, at home. Second, I haven't, for example, worn an item of clothing for a year. Great. Just send it off to chuck it in one of those charity boxes because I don't like, I don't like keeping anything that I don't use. And I know what would happen if I buy another bike and I keep the Bonneville. I'm just never going to use the Bonneville. 
I don't only end up using the, the super meteor, assuming I prefer it, of course. So it would have to be one or the other. One would have to, well, one would have to go. The Bonneville would have to go to get the super meteor. And I always go back and forth on this, Paul. Yes, I'm open to it. I am open to it. That super meteor looks like a lovely bike and I know it will be good. Uh, I'm torn with that. You know, seeing a few people posting about the BSA Gold Star at the Motorcycle Live show. I think that's coming out maybe in March next year. They keep pushing it back. It's a lovely looking bike, that Gold Star. And it's really economical as well. Glorious looking thing. Yeah, Paul, I'm open-minded. If you get it, please keep me posted with the ownership experience. Moving on. From Billy. Freddie. Let me just have one sip of wine. Okay. Freddie. I know you believe. Oh, okay. Here we go. Have a listen to this. Have a listen. This is a story. Freddie, I know you believe in buying secondhand. And until yesterday, I'd always believed the opposite. I also remember your shock when you found out that your beloved Triumph had been written off prior to you buying it. I had a similar experience yesterday, which is a cautionary tale for those of us smug enough to buy new. I had an eight-year-old, or I had my eight-year-old Hyundai, which I've owned from new, in for a valet. Imagine my shock when the valet told me they couldn't machine polish my car as whoever had, block capitals, re-sprayed it, had done such a poor job that they were scared of making it worse. It can only have been the official Hyundai dealer, as the car has only ever been in for routine servicing for a few hours since I bought it. I think that I was happier not knowing. God, Billy, you know, you know, the stuff that can go on in, in dealers and a lot of the time, and I'm the same, you know, I can think, oh, you take it to a main dealer, of course you're going to be fine there. You'll never have an issue. It'll be repaired and looked after to the highest level, to the very finest, most, you know, high level standards. I've lost all of my words. It will be looked after to the highest standards by the book, in essence. But my Lord, I've, I've seen some things as well. And this may surprise you. I got my dream job at the age of 19. I was a mechanics apprentice at Porsche, proper main dealer Porsche. And it was my dream job. But I was fired after two months because I was completely useless and had a bad attitude. And I remember one day I'd been tasked with changing the oil on I think about eight different Porsches and I changed the oil and the mechanic who was training me said great Freddie you've changed the oil um, all of them fully synthetic and I was like no no all semi-synthetic he was like no Freddie Freddie you're not listening I told you all fully synthetic and and I was like well well I haven't done it look I've done them all in semi-synthetic and he's like right okay okay just stay calm point out the Porsches that you put the wrong oil in. And I looked behind me and there were 20 different Porsches all lined up, all lined up, parked up. And I had no idea which Porsches I changed the oil of and which were waiting in the queue for me to change. No idea at all. We left it in the end. We just had to accept I've made a mistake and hope the cars are fine. You know, and that's an expensive mistake for me to make with, with expensive cars. I mean, I, obviously, I hope they're all okay. But again, I've got a friend of mine. He worked at, 
a Porsche specialist, not Porsche main dealer, Porsche specialist. The entire, the, a vintage Porsche came in and it had been completely resprayed by this garage. They'd resprayed it. They're doing a full bare metal restoration. They painted the car. It just got back from the spray painters and had been pushed in to have the engine put back in. But they needed to work on another Porsche at the same time. So they push in this other Porsche and they, they made a mistake and they actually ended up clipping this freshly painted Porsche with the other Porsche. And you can imagine just their hearts dropped and that was a huge hit for them money-wise. To be fair to them, I think they did sort it out, which of course they have to sort out. Any issues, they have to sort it. But you know, in this situation, you just hope that anything that happens that's, that's bad with a car, you know, gets fixed genuinely as new as you picked it up. I'll never forget, this is something bike related. This is something I found really eye-opening. Good friend of mine. He used to have a Kawasaki ER6. He had it serviced, it's only about two years old, and he bought it from Kawasaki and he had it serviced always at Kawasaki. It was only two years old at the time. He got it back from its service and we met up and we went for a ride. And he said, look, yeah, you know, I had my Kawasaki serviced, but I think they've damaged the fairings. And we had a look at it and he was absolutely right. Kawasaki had, it was fully fared bike, lots of plastic, Kawasaki, main dealer, had destroyed the fairings. They'd over-tightened the fairings and clearly struggled to get one of the bits of plastic fairing off. They'd cracked one of the fairings and on another bit of another fairing, they'd screwed it on so tightly that it had cracked all the way around where the screw is. And they'd said nothing. They gave the bike back like that with broken fairings and fairings are not cheap. You know, they're not cheap and they had broken the fairing and they should know how to take off a fairing and put it back on. So a cautionary tale, just like Billy's is, if you have a motorbike with, with fairings, check them after you get it serviced. And if you notice anything, immediately take it back to the dealer, immediately, because that way you're in the best position, you know, to get things rectified. Uh, you know, I'll say one more thing about this, Billy, because it's a very interesting point you make with this. My dad and my mum, my parents, they bought a Mazda MX-5 secondhand. I think it was about six years old at the time. They bought it from a Mazda main dealer, advertised with full stamped Mazda service history. Bought the car, delighted with it. A month later, my dad decided to check the service history. He checked all the service history files and it turned out it was missing three stamps. So this bike, this car, so he hadn't been serviced by Mazda at all. It missed half its servicing. My dad went back, kicked up a fuss and said, look, I bought it from Mazda because I want to buy a car and I'm paying a bit over the odds because it's from a dealer, knowing that it's been fully looked after by you. Otherwise, I'll just go to Joe Bloggs in the street and buy a, Maz buy a Mazda MX-5 from a private seller and save money. So Mazda panicked. They didn't know what to do and in the end, they ended up stamping the service history. They stamped the service history. I think they also may have given him an extra six months warranty. Uh, you know, so these things happen when you, you often don't expect them to. I'd be fascinated to know what actually happened with yours, Billy, to be a fly on the wall when, you know, maybe they biffed it in the showroom. Thank you for sending that over. I move on. 
Fabio. Oh, I like this. Fabio. Freddie, what advice would you give me? I think I'm suffering from choice paralysis or something. I took my bike license here in the UK just now in November, but I can't decide what to buy. I do have a foreign license that I took 20 years ago, but it's been a good 12 years since I've ridden on it, apart from my CBT lessons and tests. I'm 42 years old and I want something comfy but stylish, preferably very comfortable for the pillion, as I think my wife wouldn't like to ride an uncomfortable one. My current shortlist is the Meteor 350, the Bonneville, the Vulcan, or the Versus 650. I would consider the Interceptor, but I think it's, that it isn't very good for the passenger. Also, the Versus 650 is only there because it looks comfortable. I could have a top box as a passenger backrest, but I don't like it very much, the style of the bike. It's decent, but not amazing. So what do you think? Any words of advice? Yes. Okay, Fabio, here we go. Let me do some housekeeping. The Versus, get rid of it, forget about it. I can tell by the way you're writing that you already don't really like it. And for me, unless it's an absolute tool for the job where you need it for commuting and there's no other option, uh, don't buy a bike you don't love because you just won't love it. I know that sounds obvious, but you'll have it and you'll look at it and yeah, it'll be fine. I've made the mistake as well. Bought a bike I didn't love because I thought it was sensible. Forget it. Go out and buy the bike you want. So get rid of the Versus. The Meteor. Fine. Oh, I will say one thing, Fabio. Whatever bike you buy, either buy it with a backrest or make sure you're going to buy a bike that can have a backrest on. What I often do in this situation, for example, I'll type Triumph Bonneville backrest. Put it into Google and just make sure the bike you're going to buy can have a backrest and it looks good with a backrest because a backrest is probably uh, seat comfort or backrest. A backrest is one of the single most important things you can do for pillion comfort. It transforms the experience, the enjoyment experience for a passenger, completely transforms it. So if you're doing only town riding with your pillion, the Meteor will be perfectly fine and it can have a backrest and it's comfortable. If you want to do anything else, it may be a bit underpowered. So for that extra level of flexibility, if you've got a passenger who wants to be very comfortable and you may do a few longer rides, I'm just going to assume that a few longer rides every so often, I may remove the Meteor. And what you're left with, the Bonneville, incredibly comfortable, great. You can put a backrest on as well. The Vulcan, that's a really nice choice actually. That will be a very nice comfortable bike. And I, Fabio, am going to add on three more bikes for you here. Get your pen and paper ready. These are three bikes that I have handpicked and I've handpicked them for this reason. They tick your boxes. They are all stylish. They are all extremely comfortable bikes for both a passenger and a pillion. Now, I haven't ridden two of them, but I just know by the looks of them. And the fact that you've put the Vulcan in there, that's given me the green light to get a couple more mid-sized cruisers in there. All of these bikes look great, classically styled, you can have a backrest, you can have some luggage if you want luggage, otherwise just keep it off and they've got a really slimline profile. The first of the three, the Triumph Speedmaster 865. You can get one for about £4,000. It's exactly the same engine as in my Bonneville, the 865cc engine, but this is in a cruiser style, this bike. 
So it'll be incredibly good value and cheap to maintain. It will be, you know, parts readily available. It's a rock solid engine. It is more than powerful enough for two people. It will be supremely comfortable with a backrest as well. And it looks superb and you won't lose a penny on it because they've bottomed out at about 4,000 pounds. Go and check those out, specifically the Speedmaster 865, not the newer 1200, the old 865. The second one, Fabio, check out. Now this goes under the radar. I've never tried it. It was never a big seller, but it's still a relatively new bike. You're gonna have all the modern day reliability, everything that goes with it. The Yamaha XV950, beautiful classic looking cruiser, really classy lines with a great looking silhouette, really good looking engine, just a classically styled cruiser. You can have a backrest on the back, I've checked, it looks brilliant with a backrest, it'll be comfortable for yourself and your wife, and it's got a nice slim profile, so it'll be good getting around town as well. That will come in, you should be able to, if you're lucky, get one of those for five grand. And for five grand, that is a lot of bike for the money. And the final one, Fabio, slightly more old school one, but still, you know, only about 10 years old. So you'll have fuel injection and everything like that you need. The Suzuki Intruder 800. This is a really classically styled cruiser, but a very nice manageable size. Again, it will be comfortable for a pillion, low down seat height, so it's really easy to maneuver. And I think, I think if you're lucky, under 4K, maybe three and a half K for a Suzuki Intruder 800, maybe even 3K if you're lucky. Any one of those bikes, I honestly think you'll be delighted with them, Fabio. Let me know what you go for. But on top of the three that I've mentioned, yeah, the Vulcan, the Bonneville, very good choices, and they will be able to tick all of the boxes for you as well. I move on from Steve. Freddie, uh, thanks for answering my question on your podcast. Let me just have one sip. Thank you for answering my question on your podcast. Uh, Sorry, let me start again. Thanks for answering my question on your approach to safety in your podcast. And I agree with your justification. In fact, I used similar analogies to my wife uh, around scooters and cycling to convince her to let me do my direct access course for motorcycles. I really like the fact that you don't obsess over safety. It's refreshing. My question can you share your views on a couple of bikes that were on my shortlist for my first bike, which were the Honda CB650R and the Yamaha XSR700, which I actually bought. In my opinion, these are the best combination of value, looks and reliability, but you rarely seem to touch on them. And I wonder why. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, Steve, you're, you're completely right. You know, after testing out the Kawasaki Z650 RS, it did remind me what I've been missing. You know, I've owned two, one, two, three. I've owned three Japanese motorcycles. They make stunningly good bikes, the Japanese. They really know how to make a motorbike. Well, they know how to make a car. They just make things properly. Anything the Japanese do, they do it properly. And that's not to the detriment of any kind of fun or character. They know how to make character as well, the Japanese. And after riding that Kawasaki Z650 RS, 
it, it really did remind me what I've been missing. That is a stunningly good bike. And then I went out on the Kawasaki ZH1000, that 200 horsepower bike, completely different from the modern classics. But, but my Lord, that thing was a spaceship. It's a sublimely good bike, a just glorious. And the two in your shortlist, the Honda CB650R, that's a lovely looking neo retro, I would call that. Really nice looking. A lot of people say that's the best in the, the middleweight naked sector. It gets incredibly good write ups. And the Yamaha XSR700, yeah, that is probably, probably my pick from the two, just from a looks point of view. That's a really nice neo retro bike. And again, I think you can get them for £4,000. Lovely looking bikes. My my resolution for the new year, I need to test out more of these Japanese bikes next year, Steve. So from 2023, I will make a very definite effort because there is no good reason why I don't speak about these more. You know, I speak about the Japanese cruisers, but it's just that little area that I do often neglect with regards to the, the Japanese retros, the retro nakeds, the, com the competition for the Triumphs, the Moto Guzzi's and things like that. Uh, yeah, so I should. I've got no no good reason and no excuse, Steve. Uh, there's no reason why I haven't. But I think you've got there. XSR 700. A beauty of a bike. Also incredibly, incredibly fair value there coming in. That is a lot of bike if you get it, you know, the cheapest one at four grand. I'm sure they'll go up from there. But lovely looking bike. Steve, thank you for uh, for the heads up on that. Point taken. Moving on from Liam. Okay. Hi, Freddie. I hope you're well. I was just listening to your latest episode there around modifying, i.e. eBay modifications compared to Motown. Motown, just for anyone who doesn't know, Motown is a very premium company that make premium level parts for Bonnevilles. It's expensive, but it's glorious quality. Look, Freddie, I do 100% see your side of things, but I also disagree. I myself have a Bonneville. It's worth about £3,000. I'm interested in modifying and learning how to work on a bike. I'm not going to hoy £1,000 for a tech exhaust and £500 on an LED light on my 3K bike when I can just buy a cheaper stainless steel exhaust, which won't rust, and an LED light from a Jeep Wrangler for £100 and do the same thing. I feel this is different to a 20k Defender where it's worthwhile to get back what you put in. Look, in reality, my Bonneville will get sold for £3,000 as long as I have all the original parts. And if I put on the Moton parts, I'm never going to get that back. Surely the mods would be spent, would be better spent on a, a better bike if we're looking at the cost and quality aspect. There gets to be a limit with the value compared to what you do to it, surely. Yes, yes, Liam, I, I can't argue with you. You're absolutely right. I do also feel the same way as you. The only thing for me is I have, for the Bonneville, for certain parts, replaced... A perfectly good part on the Bonneville for, for a worse quality part. And, and I, I, I thought that was a mistake 
replacing a perfectly good part for something that was obviously worse quality, the wing mirrors. Um, kind of came up in my mind. In the end, I ended up just looking at these faded, rusted wing mirrors that I had put on the bike. I'd paid to replace the lovely chrome ones and put those on. But there's fun in modifying a bike to get it to the way you want. And does it always have to be premium parts? And that is a very fair point, because if I look, Liam, at what I've spent on my Bonneville, or I, I let me be completely honest, I've been extremely lucky and got some parts given to me. But if I would have to pay for those parts, yes, I have had probably about one, one and a half grand's worth of parts in my Bonneville. You know, and that is, yeah, that's a lot of money. There's no getting away from it. That is a lot of money on a bike that, you know, mine's probably worth less than 3K if I'm being completely honest. And if I would have spent that money, you know, you start thinking, ooh, ooh, well, if I just don't, modify the bike well then I can actually get I could get the 2016 model Bonneville with the new 900cc engine I could get the new version of my bike for the cost of modifying it so what's more important buying a cheaper bike but with a budget to make it exactly as you want or just going out there and buying the ultimate bike or the newer version of that bike but having not one penny to change it and just keeping it completely standard. You know, if I look at my panniers as well, I love them. They're game-changing. They're amazing. But they were £600 from Hepcombe Becker. The quality is stunning, and I will now always have panniers on my bike. But, you know, you, you look at it, and, you know, maybe I, I could have bought a second-hand bike that comes with panniers as standard, because... Especially when you're, in, when you're in the used market, you know, £600 goes a long way. If you've got a budget of, you know, I had a budget of 4K for my Bonneville. Adding an extra 600 it does start putting you into another league of motorbikes that you can actually look at. Um, I should say as well, Liam, I love your idea of putting a Wrangler light, a Wrangler light onto the Bonneville. That will also probably be a very good quality part. And exhaust, I agree, you know. So I can't disagree with you, Liam. You're absolutely right. And you know what, I, I do actually agree with you. I do, I genuinely do. The, the exhaust point is very interesting. Some exhausts are 1,800 pounds. I mean, I know they'll be brilliant and there's loads of tech in them, but yeah, it's a lot of money. I was looking, I was looking, Liam, um, and doing research on the Fantic Caballero. And this is a bike that I think is, oh, I tested it in the summer. I think it's 6,000, do, 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 do. I think it may have been five, five and a half or 6,000 pounds, let's say. Let's say 5,600 pounds for the Fantic, I think, I think. Apologies if I'm wrong. But the one I tested had the Fantic upgraded exhaust. And I think the cost of this upgraded exhaust I think it was £1,600. £1,600. So then you're taking a bike that's, let's say, £5,600, and it slots just behind, for example, the Interceptor. And that extra £1,600 puts it into a completely different league, puts it fairly close to being in league with, you know, the Triumph Bonneville T100. It's, it's it, you know, an exhaust. They can just be huge, huge amounts of money. Liam, thank you for that. 
yeah, yeah, I, I agree with you. Despite what I said, I do actually agree with you. I'll move on to Stephen. Freddie, just a quick word on the topic of protective riding kit. I very much agree with your opinion and analysis on when and where it's appropriate to wear proper riding gear. I find that wearing a t-shirt, jeans and an open-faced helmet on a beautiful hot summer's day actually accentuates the riding experience, although I would 100% modify my speed and ride accordingly. Some risk studies show a correlation between wearing PPE and risk-taking, i.e. when you're all suited and booted, you feel less vulnerable and take more risks. This also works in reverse, so that when you're less protected, you're much more alert and careful. And although protective riding kit definitely has its place and is appropriate in certain conditions, I must confess that I love the cool Rebel Brando McQueen biker look and attitude. I also wish that people would stop being so judgmental and preachy. And it's all one-way traffic. Those with a relaxed attitude to risk never shout at or berate bikers in full leathers. However, there's a section of the biking community that want to impose their views on others. Just live and let live, folks. Stephen, great to hear your thoughts on that. And the, the risk factor with regards to not wearing gear and wearing all of the gear... I find this especially interesting because when I was learning to ride, uh, there was a oh, lovely guy, lovely guy, Irish biker called Tony. We got along brilliantly well. He, he was a real inspiration for me to get into biking. And, and he never wore trousers. Never wore trousers. It makes him sound ridiculous. He never wore motorcycle trousers, motorcycle jeans. And I said, Tony, what, why don't you wear jeans? You know, biking trousers, whatever it may be. And he said, oh, because if I wear biking jeans, I'll, I'll be going too crazy. I just wear normal jeans because it just keeps me, it keeps me steady, in essence. It means that I won't push it, push it too much. And just following on from that, I, I, when I had my Suzuki Bandit, I went on a, a lovely trip with a few friends to the Lake District biking trip. And I decided to go fully kitted up. You know, all full leathers this is, not just biking jeans, full leathers, top to toe in leathers. And I have never ridden, never ridden just so aggressively. I mean, it was incredible fun, but you know, every bend I was pushing, I really felt like, I didn't feel invincible, but I did genuinely feel, especially when you get to open sweeping bends where you can see ahead of you, I felt like, look, obviously I don't want to come off but I can push it 20% more than I think I usually would because I think I'd be okay if I came off here because my leathers have so much protection. It gives you a very, very added element of, uh, you know, of, of being in a cocoon, being in a bubble when you've got full leathers on. It's, it's hard not to ignore it. I think subconsciously you do ride differently whether you try and force yourself not to or not. When I'm not riding in, in the full gear, when I'm riding in town, for example, I would never dream of pushing it much in a corner. I just pootle along. But, <coughs> but put me in leathers, excuse me, full leathers, I will be pushing it. I will be pushing it 100%. So that is a very interesting point you make there, Stephen. Again, I welcome anyone uh, who, who thinks I'm talking utter nonsense, but I, I quite strongly agree with that, actually. And you know what? 
Stephen a dirty secret from my side as well. I also enjoy open face helmet and just a t-shirt riding. That will be hard to stomach for quite a few people, but there's a glorious feeling of freedom. Just, you know, a, a slow country lane or just whizzing around, pootling around town in the summer, just in a t-shirt and an open face helmet. It does give you an extra element of freedom. You know, I'm not certainly not recommending it, my, my lord. You know, I get in some trouble for that, but it's a lovely feeling. It really is just those summer days with a t-shirt on. Oh, it's glorious, maintaining your speed, of course, or moderating your speed, but it's lovely. It really is a beautiful feeling of freedom. Stephen, thank you for sending that over. Next. Let me see. Oh, I tell you what, let me just get through all of them today. I think I'll be about another another five minutes or so. Right. Thank you all. I should just say thank you for sending these messages and emails. And it's brilliant fun just having a chat and replying away. So thank you for this. Right. I move on. Freddie, I hope you're well. I was interested to hear that the Super Meteor and BSA Gold Star are on your shortlist for your next bike. My question, do you think the 47 horsepower 650cc engine would be suitable for two-up touring? The Super Meteor certainly looks beautiful. It looks like a beautiful bike. Regards, Nick. Nick, I am, I am I just so on the fence with this. I know that 47 horsepower engine from the Interceptor. Uh, I had it for a thousand miles and I did lots of two up on it and it's perfectly fine. It can do two up motorways around town everywhere, 75, even I think 80, I'm sure with two up. No issue at all. But... But you've specifically said here, two up touring. So it can be set up for touring, you know, nice backrest and panniers, but you've specifically said touring. And for me, that makes me think that, you know, multi-day trips, multiple hours in the saddle will be a big part of your riding experience. So that's what puts me on the fence. Looking at a bigger engine, would a bigger engine, slightly slightly more power, maybe up to the 65 horsepower mark, would that give you an extra amount of relaxation? You know, that lazy amount of power, especially when you get 70 or 80 miles an hour on the motorway, that extra power boost up to about 65 horsepower, that would mean that it's just a little bit more relaxing on those longer journeys. So I may, you know, I would probably have to do a genuine test on that. The 47 horsepower, I like to think that it would be enough, but but I think I may have to actually test that out before giving a definite answer because I'm right on the fence with that. It can be set up beautifully, though, with the backrest and the panniers, and it can do the speed. Anyone else? I, I welcome some input on that. 47 horsepower for two-up riding. I, I think I would take the risk and do it, and I think it would be fine, but... It'll be interesting to see when I actually finally get to test one. Final two for the day from Chris. Freddie, what about The Matrix? This is regards to what film got you into biking. What about The Matrix? The Red Ducati 748. Great chase, Chris. You know what, Chris? I, I remember that very well. And that is a breathtakingly good looking bike. That bike is just a masterpiece, at least looks wise. It's the kind of bike that... I would, I would never ride. I would just buy it and put it in my living room as a work of art. I, I really don't think I'd ever, ever ride one of these. There's one thing I want to point out. 
this looks like a really good investment. And it's also interesting to see what mileage does to these kind of Ducatis with regards to residuals. Let me give you an example. The three cheapest Ducati 748s, the three cheapest, they range in price from £4,400 to £8,500. And have a listen to this. Ducati 748, this is the third cheapest on Autotrader. It's £8,500. It has 8,400. Oh, it's got 8,400 miles on the clock. The next cheapest is 8,450 pounds and it has 7,400 miles on the clock. Both of them yellow, both of them the year, well, 99, 2000. So those two pretty much exactly the same price. However, drop down 4,000 pounds, 4,000 pounds, and you can get one with 39,978 miles on the clock. Mileage for bikes like Ducati 748s, these really special Italian ones, these, you know, these really sports-focused, high-tech, or even though it's an old bike, you know what I'm talking about, these focused weapons, these works of art. Mileage is so important for residual values, so, so important, I almost feel think that I'd feel guilty just for riding it one mile down the street, but that's a good investment there, 748. Buy it, keep it, it will go up in value. I'm going to end here, Rob in the US. Rob, you, you've broken my heart here with this. Uh, Freddie, I test rode uh, the new Speedmaster and T120 recently while exploring my Triumph Tiger trade in options. While I love the Speedmaster looks, the pillion seat revealed a big thumbs down. The T120 happened to have the king and queen seat. Wow, that's a pleasure to ride. It's one of the smoothest, well, most well-behaved bikes I've ever ridden. But the dealer... The kind dealer offered me £5,000 under what I paid for my Triumph Tiger in 2021. Look, while reasonable profit is understood, taking a cold bath at a Triumph dealer killed the deal. I'll keep looking. Rob, I wasn't lucky enough to try the, the Speedmaster with a pillion seat, and I never got to experience that. And your comments there, they may well sway my mind into considering that if I were ever to change the Bonneville for a potential shortlist because pillion comfort, yeah, it's, it is fairly essential for me. So that comment has, uh, has put a question mark on that bike for me. Hmm. Thank you for that, Rob. Thank you everyone for listening. I cannot believe it. My, my Lord, just under an hour. Thank you so much, everyone. Have an amazing weekend all and Anything you want discussed, any queries, if you want to bring anything up, please do send me a message. You can email dob.bs at outlook.com or contact me through the website. I'll speak to you all in the next one. Oh, I'll speak to you all in the next one. And go and check out xlmotor.com for the end of that Black November sale. Link in the description below. Take care all.